0: All right, everybody, come in, find your place, but don't take your seat, because we stand for the reading of God's Word. No, but please, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, actually chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, Rebecca Becca will read that for us.
1: A reading from God's word, from the letter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Thanks be to God. All right. Well, we are here in the third of a long series in 1 Corinthians. And the series title is Being God's People. So, since we've only had a couple of sermons, in the series, and we're just still at the very beginning of the letter, I'm going to do a quick recap of where we've been to set us up for where we are and the text that we're going to look at. So, three weeks ago, Daniel preached, um, gave us the setup for 1 Corinthians. Uh, The first four chapters of the letter are dealing with kind of the first of several issues that the Corinthians wrote to Paul about or that some people from the church in Corinth had communicated to Paul. And so he's addressing those different questions or issues, concerns. So Daniel gave us some some helpful ways to think about the the concerns that are being brought up. We have a lot of different topics hit. We have unity together as the body of Christ We have leadership in the church and how to handle that. We have sexuality. We have marriage and singleness. We have food offered to idols. How do we we handle deference and how do we handle right relationship with each other when we have different opinions about things? We have how do we do corporate worship? We have explanations and demonstrations and commands on how we should do things, and we hear about these spiritual gifts and how God gave those to us and what they are and what we're supposed to do with them and how we're supposed to do it. And so there's a lot of different things that we talk about in the letter. It's very practical. But Daniel said, don't read this letter like you'd read Wikipedia, where each entry is separate and kind of its own little island. So if it's not a bunch of separate topics just kind of randomly selected and dropped into this letter... What is it that holds it all together? Well, Paul introduces that through these verses. Um, And, sorry, I'm going to just let you know right now, I didn't pick what's up here. I picked some of it. So I don't really know what's going to be up here. So listen to my words. We have a great sound team. I'm just going to pause and say, we have a great team that serves us every single Sunday. So, thank you guys. You make us look good. <clears throat> all right. So, what is it that anchors us to all these different topics? Well, we're going we're gonna to talk about that today in this particular passage. After that, John preached three weeks ago, two weeks ago, whatever it was. He preached and asked us the question, what makes all the difference? And he gave us some points talking about Uh, things that make the difference in our life. And the last point that he made was boasting that displays the difference. So I know you guys all took good notes. You don't need more reference than that for what's been said. But basically, it's a a broad list of things. How do we anchor those things? And what does make all the difference? We're going to really tap into, drill into the boast and the boasting that makes all the difference today in this text. So, Becca read chapter 1, 18 through our text, but it's actually in verse 17 that Paul makes this introductory idea, he presents it to us, and he says, this is really the thing that I'm going to counter your disunity and your favoritism that you've created amongst yourselves in the church, Uh, basically saying, "I, I prefer to follow this leader. Well, I think this leader is the best. I was baptized by Paul. Well, actually, Jesus is really a big deal, right? So these are the divisions that we see. Personalities, um, influencers in the church are affecting how the church interacts with each other. Wrongly. They're doing it wrongly. So he's addressing them in that. And he says, I'm glad that I didn't baptize any of you except for a couple of people. So that you are not mistaken about who this is about. This isn't about me. It's not about Apollos. It's not about Cephas or Peter. It's it's about one person and about one thing that that person did in particular. So this is what he says in verse 17 of chapter 1. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That phrase right there is really what sets up most of the rest of two, chapter one, chapter two, into chapter three and four, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul started the letter by really connecting these people to their identity in Christ. They belong to Christ. They're his. And in that union and fellowship, they need to rest and be rejoicing and glad and happy. This is, this is a great thing that's happened to you. You now all belong to each other across the different castes or, or economic, socioeconomic divides that exist in the church, across gender barriers, across whatever the case is. They're saying all of you are in Christ and this is a reason to rejoice. And so he's pulling him back and saying, now don't mess it up. Don't squabble. Okay, so that's context for where we are right now. And today's passage is taken out of uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. That's five verses. It's three sentences. And we're going to break it down by sentences and just kind of give you a high flyover of what the text says. And then as I do that, we're going to ask some questions of the text, make some points, observations about it for you. And then I'm going to, this is going to be quick, so don't, don't get upset if you can't track with me on all your notes These are really just for context. And then I want to tell you what my two points are, two points, and a couple of application pieces, what I really hope that you guys walk away with today, what I think the Lord wants you to hear. All right, so to the text. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brothers... I did not come, or excuse me, I'm going to start that over. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and with wisdom. All right, so we're going to stop there, ask a couple of questions. When did Paul come to them? That seems like an important context for when he says, when I came to you. So he's writing this letter from, from in the future, or, or basically in the, in, the, in the past. Of oh, He's been there in the past, and he's writing back to them about his experience there. So when he came, we'll talk about that. I want to point out the job of proclaiming to you the testimony of God. An apostle's job was to go bear witness to what they had seen and heard. And especially those apostles that had seen the risen Christ, their job was to go and proclaim, I saw Jesus alive. He is the Messiah. That's their job. he comes and makes a distinction between lofty speech and wisdom and the testimony that he's preaching. So he doesn't present it in a special, unique, memorable, exciting way that would convince you to believe it just because of his demonstration of it. His, not his demonstration, rather, his, um, his persuasive speech. He's bringing you just the message, pretty plain and simple. So think thing about a courtroom in a context where you have evidence and you have witnesses. And you want those people to be honest and you want it to be clear. So that's really what Paul is doing here. In the the case for Christ, as it were, he's saying, I was a witness and I have evidence. And I'm bringing you that, plain and simple. I'm not trying to wow you with flashy opinions. All right, verse 2. Which happens to be sentence number two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So he is talking about Jesus of Nazareth, who was the Messiah. He was a teacher. He was a prophet. He was a healer. He was a friend. He was somebody that interacted with us. He was a real person. In Him crucified, that crucifixion, Paul's probably thinking about the prophetic fulfillment that happened in Jesus. He's thinking about the atonement that Jesus accomplished on the behalf of sinners. He's thinking about the judgment of God for sins when he's talking about that. Again, I didn't put these up there. All right. Now, verse 3. Verse 3 is the third sentence. It is a long sentence. Not quite as long as some of Paul's, but it's long. And it's basically reiterating what the first two sentences said. So, verse three, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, a really obvious question we might ask of this is why was Paul weak and trembling? And afraid. Well, we'll talk about that. That's one of the points. When he says, my message, my message wasn't persuasive, what does he mean by that? He says, I demonstrated to you the power of the gospel and the power of the Spirit. I want to make a special note about this word demonstration here. This particular, uh, well, I'm going to read, I don't think we did put this up here. I'm going to read a commentary note about this word, demonstrated. The word translated, demonstration here, means the most rigorous proof. So some proofs would indicate no more than the conclusion that follows from some premises. But with this particular word, the premise is known to be true, and therefore the conclusion is not only logical, it is also certain. So the point that he's making is here that the premises are obviously true, ergo, the conclusion is also obviously true. It's not just like, here's a complicated theorem, and here's my proof. You know, it's like he's saying, this whole thing is really, really true. So he's really driving home the point that I demonstrated this to you, I've shown it to you, you know it to be true, you've seen it. And so I'm appealing to your interaction with the truth. And then the last question we might ask of this particular sentence is, um, or point out, rather, that all of this was so that their faith wasn't in Paul or in what they understood him to say in his persuasive, eloquent speech, but rather it was in God who it was supposed to be in. So the so that here, the important piece, the, the reason for all of this is so that they are not deceived, but rather confident in the things that they have seen of God. Okay. So that leads us to the points. I have two points, and then two application pieces. and We'll work through those in detail, the bulk of the rest of what I have to say. So the points are this. A weak man boasting, that's the first point, in the power of the gospel. That's the second point. Altogether, it is a weak man boasting in the power of the gospel. So we'll talk about that. Here's what I want you to hear and take away from today. What I want. Now, what the Spirit does, I'm happy for Him to do. Contrary to this, Michael Stalker came up here a little bit ago and said, You know, there's means, and God works through means, and He works with means and against means, and I hope He works with the means of me, but hopefully you are benefited for this. Here's what, here's what it is No matter what circumstances you find yourself in, or what weaknesses you know about yourself, or what torments Satan is allowed to buffet you with. The gospel is power for salvation and it is sufficient for your life and your calling. That's a long application point. I'm gonna reiterate it. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life, it doesn't matter what your personal weakness is or what Satan is opposing you with, the gospel is sufficient The gospel is sufficient. And then the second point I really want you to leave here with is from this text. We cannot make the gospel stronger. However, we can make it weaker. We cannot make the gospel stronger, but we can weaken it. So let me tell you how. All right. First point. A weak man boasting. So we ask the question, why was Paul saying that he was afraid, timid, shaking, unconfident? Why was he this way? Well, for this, we're going to take some context. We're going to tell the story of Acts 15 through 18, abbreviated. Starts off, this is Paul's second missionary journey. Do we have this slide? We should have this slide. I did pick this one. I don't have my pointer. That's okay. You can see. Hopefully. Paul's second missionary journey is the solid red line. It starts where it says starting point, up in the top right, in Antioch. So, context, they've just finished this council in Jerusalem where they decided, yeah, God actually really is coming to the Gentiles. Really did blow their minds. And they figured out, well, what does this mean and how do we relate to the Gentiles? Well, Paul knows already that he's been called as a special ambassador to the Gentiles, and so he is ready to start out again, launch out into the second missionary journey with him and Barnabas. Except that he and Barnabas have a pretty massive dispute over John Mark. Now, Barnabas has been an advocate for Paul since his conversion. He was the one that introduced him to the church in Jerusalem. He was like the guy that helped Paul be recognized as the real thing, really converted, not just faking it so he can sneak in and kill more Christians. Barnabas trusted and believed in Paul and what God was doing in Paul. So this is a fast friendship, and they, like Paul relies on, on Barnabas. And here they, dispute, they disagree and they separate. So this is really a foundational moment in Paul's journey. He's just left the guy that helped him from the beginning. And so he gets another guy, Silas, and Silas and Paul set out together, and they go into Asia. So they kind of travel through... Lycia and Galatia, and they're moving in. They're trying to get into Asia, but we know the story. They were prevented by the Holy Spirit from entering into Asia. They couldn't minister there. They finally ended up in another city that kind of went up and around Asia to Troas, and there Paul had a vision. And he said he heard a man from Macedonia calling to him and saying, Come over and help us. So now Paul, who believes in the power of the Holy Spirit and knows what that looks like and what God's calling on his life is, says, all right, I need to go to Macedonia, which is up in the top left. The Macedonia is where Philippi is, where Thessalonica is, where Berea is. We're familiar with those places. So Paul heads off to Philippi. And he gets there, he starts ministering the way he normally does. He goes to the synagogue, he starts reasoning with people, telling them about Jesus, and ends up casting a demon out of a girl that brings people a lot of money. And so they get mad at him, and they take him to the the magistrates, and they say, this guy's causing problems. And they just, you know, as one does with some guy causing problems and casting out demons, they beat him really bad. Then they throw him in prison, in the deepest, dankest part of prison. And that's where they are. And then that night, they're singing, and the Lord performs a miracle. He gets them out with an earthquake, and they, they, they prevent the Philippian jailer from killing himself because he thinks all the slaves are gone, and what lo and behold, the Philippian jailer is the first convert there. What a dramatic way to see the Lord working. But don't forget that Paul has been beaten and imprisoned and survived an earthquake. Okay. Then he's run out of town because the Jews come behind him and they're trying to kill him. So they leave Philippi and they go to Thessalonica. Very similar thing happens at Thessalonica. They meet some people. They're a little skeptical. There are some people. There's a church established there that, that, that they start following Paul and his teaching. But then again, the Jews chasing after him, trying to kill him. And so he takes off for Berea, Thessalonica. They send him to Berea. So when in Berea, he finds people who are interested in the gospel, who are actually studying to, to verify what Paul is saying is true. Again, another small community of faith is established there. But then they have to leave there, too, because they're being chased by the Jews. And so from Berea, they actually leave Macedonia, and they go to Athens, which is in Achaia. When they're in Athens, from there, Paul sends Silas and Timothy back to Thessalonica to encourage the church there. We read about this in 1 Thessalonians. And so when, they're, when Paul is in Athens, he's all by himself. But he, hears, he feels the spirit move in him to proclaim the gospel, and so he does. And this time it's not in a synagogue, it's in a marketplace, and he's talking to the Jews. But then there's also the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are the philosophers, the real high-browed, you know, kind of nerdy people who are really interested in all kinds of crazy ideas. They're, they're welcoming of all religions. They want to hear and know and grow in understanding. And so they're like, hey, who is this babbler, and what the heck is he talking about? Let's have you talk to us. We'll bring you to the Areopagus. This is our place where we hear great ideas. Tell us about your God. And so Paul does. Now, Acts 17 is where we're at now. This is the passage that most apologists will look to and say, look at what Paul did. Look at this sermon that Paul preached here. It's amazing. He expertly weaves in the cultural context of the gospel. These people have never heard about Jesus before. They don't know about the one true God. And he brings it all together and cleverly communicates the gospel to them. And they get to the resurrection, the powerful part of the gospel, right? Aside from the crucifixion, they get there and they say, well, you're nuts. You are a babbler. So a few people do end up believing, but not a lot. We don't hear of a church being planted here. So Paul's by himself and he decides to leave Athens and then he goes to Corinth. And that's where this retelling of Acts 15 through 18 stops. He gets to Corinth but he's by himself, doesn't have any friends. And you have to wonder from a human perspective, okay, let's recap real quick. He's been beaten almost to death, imprisoned. He survived an earthquake. He's been run out of three or four cities. He's all by himself in a brand new place. It seems reasonable that he would be weak and afraid and trembling. God called me here, but... I'm not even in Macedonia anymore. What's going on? What have I done wrong? Now, Acts 17, when we hear about there, certainly wasn't a failure, but you have to wonder if Paul was going, well, there's no church left over after I, after I, I departed. So, man, that wasn't successful. What's, what's going wrong? And so that's where we get the context of Paul being weak and afraid and trembling. Here are some other things that we know about Paul and his personal weakness that he tells us. Most of what we know of his his personal confidence we hear about in his communication to the Corinthians, either in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. So here's some passages that I'll highlight. 1 Corinthians 2, this is the one we're we're familiar with. Weakness, I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And then he said in 2 Corinthians 10, they said, this is the Corinthian church, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. His speech is of no account. 2 Corinthians 11. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, he says. So he acknowledges he's not skillful in speaking. Um, he's very aware of his weakness, he makes comments about it freely. Here's a description of Paul. This is from a non-biblical text, but it is something that you know, would have been known about around the time after, the, after these letters, right after the canon was really established. This is an extra-biblical description of who Paul was. He was a man of small stature, with a bald head, crooked legs, in a good state of body, with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked. He was a short, bald man with a unibrow. That's Paul. Not real confidence boosting. And so Paul's aware of this, Paul's experienced this, so not only is he not really present, like, present well, necessarily, but he's also been through a lot, so it's very reasonable to understand why he's telling us, I was with you in weakness and fear. But here's a word, like I want to distinguish here between weakness and humility, because Paul actually has both. His weakness in concert with the power of the Spirit produces humility, okay? I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 12. This is where Paul talks about a particular weakness that he has. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 17. Sorry, 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had received, a thorn was given me in the flesh a messenger of satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited three times i pled with the lord about this that he that it should leave me but he said to me my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore i will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of christ may re- rest upon me for the sake of Christ then i am content with weakness insults hardships persecutions and calamities for when i am weak then i am strong so ultimately what paul has to say about his weakness is i am my grace is, god said to him my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness in addition to this, when we look at Jesus, we see a very similar type of a person. Jesus was a man of no earthly stature, Isaiah tells us. He was rejected and despised. He was, there was nothing about his physical presence that was super great. And he suffered. He lived a life of suffering and hardship for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the mission that the Lord had put him on, that his father had asked him to complete. And so in many ways, Paul really is... Taking on the mantle of Christ and, and following Christ in the most, the most explicit way. Put your cross on your shoulder and follow me. And that's what Paul is doing. That's what we see Paul doing. That's the life he lived. That's the example that he set. And that's what he called the churches that he ministered to, to. He called them to that life. And that is, in fact, the life he calls us to. That the Lord calls us to. But here's some things that gave Paul some confidence. As we know, he found confidence in the weakness that he felt because the Lord provided strength to him. He was called by God in Antioch to be an apostle to the Gentiles. He met Jesus on the road to Damascus. He'd been called specifically to go to Macedonia and Achaia by a vision. He'd been given the ministry of reconciliation that he talks about. In 1 Corinthians, he tells us that he is among the super-apostles that the Corinthian church is trying to, like, distinguish between. But then in 1 Corinthians 15, he actually says, I am the least of the apostles. In Ephesians, we hear him call himself the least of saints. And in 1 Timothy, he tells Timothy, I'm the worst of sinners. So Paul's understanding of himself is true. It's not demeaning. He's very aware of the reality. He's not impressive. He's had a hard time. He's had a hard life and a hard calling, but he's confident in the Lord. And so maybe a little point of application for us is how many times have we encountered things in our life where we feel very confident that the Lord has put us there. He's confirmed it. He's given us some truth to hang on to. And yet, then we see that truth not come to fruition at least the way we expect it to after many months, years, decades. Does that negate the calling? Does that negate what he said? No, it doesn't. And we see that in Paul here. He's confident in these things. He's confident in the Lord. And he's living that confidence and he's enduring a lot for the sake of living it well. So this kind of concludes the first point. He was a weak man boasting in, in his weakness. He was a weak man boasting in the confidence he had in the Lord And here I'll reiterate the application piece that I want you to walk away with. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter what trial or struggle or weakness you personally are going through, no matter what the Lord is allowing Satan to do in your life, the thorn in the flesh, the messenger from Satan to harass you, the gospel is sufficient for you it is sufficient for your life and your calling and all of us have weaknesses we, if i asked any one of you to if i asked you to stand up if you have a weakness everyone would stand up so this is for all of us no matter what the weakness is you might think it's the worst possible thing in the world it's not The gospel is sufficient for you. All right, so back to the text for the second point. We're going to go to verse 3. Again, the summary sentence. I was with you in fear and trembling. My speech and my message were not of plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. So we know why Paul was weak and trembling now. In fact, Paul's very defects afforded the most convincing demonstration of the power of the Spirit. Though there was nothing impressive about him, about the preaching from a human standpoint, it carried conviction. It was not human excellence that accomplished this, but it was the Spirit's power. And this was the case so that their faith would not rest in his Ability to communicate, but rather in the actual power of the gospel lived out. So now we're going to talk about what he was boasting about, the power of the gospel, point two, in the power of the gospel. So Paul does bring them back to something that he says in chapter 1, verse 26, where Becca started, or where she read from this morning. For consider your calling... So now he's really trying to connect them for not only his message and what the power was, but to consider their own calling. When you heard my message, the gospel, preached to you, and you were called to receive it and accept it, what was that? Remember that. Remember the power that you experienced, the peace that you received, the confidence you had in the hope that was promised to you. Leon Morris, in his commentary on 1 Corinthians, makes this observation. Paul's intention had been to ground his converts in the divine power and to make them independent of human wisdom. So Wilson, who's another commentator being referenced here, points out that a faith that depends upon clever reasoning may be demolished by a more acute argument but the faith which is produced by the power of God can never be overthrown. I'll read that again. A faith that depends upon clever reasoning may be demolished by a more acute argument, but the faith that is produced by the power of God can never be overthrown. And therefore, Paul had refused to employ the rhetorical arts and had concentrated on the message that was unpalatable to natural man and that is the message of the cross. So now we ask the question, what is the gospel? Now most of us in this room are very familiar with the idea of the gospel. Most of us have a very similar answer to what the gospel is, but we're going to talk about it anyway. What is the gospel? John gave us a really excellent um, summary of the gospel. In fact, most of what the time that the work that John did a couple weeks ago on the gospel was, was very excellent work. And if you didn't hear it, I encourage you to go back and listen to it. And if you did hear it, you should go back and listen to it again. Here's a piece of what he said. This is under what makes all the difference. The message that makes all the difference is not one of philosophy or a promise of religion, religious ceremony, or miracle. It is a spirit-revealed interpretation of actual historical events. A spirit revealed interpretation of actual historical events that happened in the first century. God sent his son as a human child to be born by the Virgin Mary. And this this right here is the nugget of the gospel. He lived a sinless life, sinless righteous life. He died a shameful criminal's death to pay the penalty for the sins of all those who had put their who of all the sins of those who had put their faith in him. And after three days he rose from the dead. Continuing the quote, these are historical events. They really happened. They are not mere metaphors for how to be, to be made right with God, for how to be made right with God. We are not, put, we're not putting our faith in some idea, but in the very concrete actions of the Son of God. So that's what John told us about. The thing that makes this extra special for us that this message has been given to you, is that if we repent of our sin and our independence from God and we believe that he will forgive us for our sin if we ask, then we will be adopted into his family. So I'm going to say that again. If we believe the message that we're receiving that he died for us, that he died for sinners, and we trust that that forgiveness that he offers is true and real, we will become part of his family. Amen. Thanks be to God. So remember how we talked about the idea of bearing witness to the truth, that the apostle's job was to bear witness of the truth. At the end of 1 Corinthians, at the end of the letter, he kind of bookends his emphasis on the gospel for well, the first four chapters, and he, he quotes a church creed that was being used in the first century. And this is what he says. This is 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you at f- as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. That is is the message of first importance. That is the gospel. So these things really happened, and they were witnesses. The most critical scholars in the world will say that Jesus was real, that he was a good man, that he accomplished many marvelous things. Of course, where they break down and and disagree with us is that they don't believe he rose from the dead. They don't believe that he was the son of God. But they will admit that he was real and that what he did was real. But here we see what's been preserved for us from the witnesses, from the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. We see that he, in fact, did rise from the dead. And it was not just a couple people that saw him. It was a lot. There's about seven different times in Acts where we have examples of the gospel being preached to us. And they are clear declarations of the gospel. They're Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 7, 10, 13, 17, and 26. In those chapters, there's declarations of the gospel from Peter and from Paul, from Stephen. I would encourage you to go check those out. If you ever want to understand what does the Bible declare the gospel to be, go read those passages. Those passages are the declaration of the gospel. You want to learn how to say it better, to do it better? That's where you should start, these seven examples. So the the letter to Romans and to the Galatians were excellent expositions of the gospel. They explain the gospel in greater detail and really unpack the miracle and the wonder of the gospel, but the gospel is very straightforward and simple. In fact, this is how Jesus described the gospel to us. As Moses Lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. That is the message of the gospel. That's what Jesus said about the gospel. It's the love of God to sinners that he sent his son to die for them so that they might be saved. Whoever believes this message believes what Jesus claimed and they will be saved from the condemnation of their sins. And so the question is, how can we dress that up anymore? Paul is saying, I didn't come to you with eloquent words or with trying to convince you with a lofty argument. That part of the reason is, how can you dress that up? The message is very straightforward and simple. God died for sinners to save them. And then he did it. He came and he did it on the cross. The most brutal way you could possibly suffer and die, and that's the, that's the death that God chose to die for sinners. As much as we try, might want to, try to convince people To be saved, we can't do it. And the truth is that Jesus even said, He said as much. Before I get to that, I got ahead of myself here. Um, No, no, I didn't. I was right on track. Look at me. All right. Jesus, Jesus said this about the message of the gospel. He said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do you not marvel when I say you must be born again? The wind blows where it wishes, and you will hear its sound, but you will not know where it came from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So as much as we might try to convince people, we can't actually convince them the Spirit has to do the work. We can present the gospel, which is what Paul did and what Paul was doing. He was boasting in the power of the gospel, And delivering to them only the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified because he can't do any better. And he actually can't convince them to believe. He can give them reasonable arguments, which he does a lot. He does try to persuade them that Jesus was the Messiah from the Old Testament, from history, from the evidence that's given to us. Apologetically, we must be ready and able to defend why we believe what we believe. But we can't actually make the gospel any stronger. In fact, when we try to convince people with argument, we weaken it. We run the risk of damaging the gospel by by over-communicating and overly loftily explaining it to people. We have to deliver what was given to us. The thing of first importance, God loves sinners. He sent his son to die for sinners so that if they believe in him, he will forgive them of their sin and he will give them everlasting life. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's talking about. That's why Paul didn't try to dress it up. That's why Paul did everything he did, why he experienced the brutality and weakness of, and, and suffering that he experienced at the hands of the Jews and of the elements and of his own personal struggle and, and from Satan because he believed in the power of the gospel. And yet, this is a quote from, from John's sermon. D.A. Carson said this. The ancient world deployed various polarity by describing humanity Romans and barbarians, Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free. But Paul here sets forth the only polarity that is of ultimate importance. He distinguishes between those who are perishing and those who are being saved. The dividing line between those two groups is the message of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. So skeptics might try to befuddle us a little bit by asking questions. I mean, a very real question. If there's a good God who's all-powerful and all-knowing, why does bad stuff happen? It's a fair question. I don't know. I know what God says. He says, I do all things for my glory and for your good. Well, this doesn't feel very good, this terrible thing that just happened to me. I, I, I don't know. All I can say is that God said it's for his glory. And I can choose to trust him or I can choose to be upset about it. And I'll probably try to trust him while being upset about it. That's what most of us do. But the truth is that whatever bad happens to us, God allows it to happen because he, he wants to accomplish something good through it. So, this question is often like connected to the idea of the problem of evil. So we all, as humanity, since Adam, we've inherited a sense of wisdom from Adam by eating the tree of knowledge of good and evil. However, it's a broken understanding of right and wrong. So we have a, a true sense of right and wrong, but it's, it's corrupted. God's law is in our hearts, which gives us kind of a proverbial, spiritual compass that always points true north On morality, the true north is God. So that's why sinners can have a true sense of right and wrong. Why it's wrong to kill people, why it's wrong to steal, why it's wrong to do bad things. Even if they don't acknowledge that there is a God, they know that those things are true because the law of God is written on their hearts. But God did actually hand humanity over to their own failed understanding because they decided to disobey him and walk away from him. He handed us over to ourselves and unto the authority of Satan, who is the father of lies. And our eyes have been darkened and our hearts hardened toward him because we are selfish beings. So the world's wisdom is ultimately only selfish wisdom, which is why the world's wisdom conflicts with God's wisdom. God's wisdom is Jesus. God's solution is Jesus. The world's wisdom is no, actually, I don't believe that. I believe that God's holding out on me for some reason. I believe that there's some other alternative motive that he has. I'm not going to trust the gospel and his solution because I think that there's something better for me out there, which is the oldest lie that mankind has ever been told. God doesn't really want your good. He's holding out on you. But if you eat this fruit, then you'll be like God. Oldest lie in the book. And yet, we believed it then and we believe it now. I'm not going to accept the gospel because I think God's holding out on me and I can do better. I can't explain why bad things happen. Surely it wouldn't be because there's a good God. Ergo, I'm not going to trust him. Well, that's that's folly. That is folly. If you look at the bad things and say there must not be a God, that's folly. And we should not believe that. That's the oldest lie in the book. Here instead is how we should think about it. And this is something that happened to me just last Sunday. It was a realization I had driving to church. And I was thinking about this problem. And I was thinking about that question. And I was thinking about a friend of mine that I've been having gospel conversations with. Because he rejects God for those reasons. And I actually don't have any convincing argument to try to make him change his mind. I can't do it. The gospel can. Thankfully, I've had opportunities to share the gospel with him. But as I was debating and thinking about that particular question, here's what I realized. That Jesus, that God, before time began, he knew all these things that were going to happen. He allowed them to happen. said they were going to happen, even the bad things. And then he said, I'm going to fix it because there's no one else that can fix it besides me, but I'm going to fix it. And his solution to fixing our sin was that he was going to die. God's solution to the greatest problem that man has ever faced is that he's going to die for it. That's not something we would make up. Right? We don't make that kind of ending up. We say, ah, they didn't do what I wanted them to do. I'll just wipe them all out and start over. Or I just won't let them do bad things at all. They'll be kind of robots. They're just going to do exactly what I want all the time. No, God said they're going to make bad choices. They're going to hurt each other. And I'm going to solve that problem by dying for them. One would scarcely die for a righteous man, certainly not an unrighteous one, and God died for billions. You cannot dress that up. You cannot make that story better. That is the gospel. That no matter what circumstances you're finding yourself in, what weaknesses you personally have, what Satan is buffeting you with, That message right there is sufficient for wherever you are and whatever you are doing. Jesus died for sinners to save sinners who trust in him. That's the gospel. Andrew, you can bring the team back up, the worship team. So this is the gospel. This is what it means to know only Jesus, and only him crucified. It is to know the love of God for sinners, the ultimate sacrifice of God for sinners. We cannot make the gospel stronger. We do risk weakening it, though, if we don't just preach it, and only it. And we don't preach it constantly. We have the greatest news ever told, We need to be telling people. We need to be living in that. But make sure that it's the gospel that you're living in and not some set of lofty ideals. It is that Jesus died for sinners. And I am one, and you are one, and he died for us. Hallelujah. So with our faith, our confidence, and our boast, may our unity in Jesus lead us to sing and to rejoice in the love of God that he has for sinners.